The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Last week, I brought to you the, the sad news about the passing of Joseph Warner, a young man who uh, has, he and his wife Tiffany were about to join this church, and he just tragically uh, was taken home to be with the Lord while celebrating Advent with his family uh, last uh, Friday night, so basically not even uh, two weeks ago. And I just want to say that y'all have done just a phenomenal job this week, just coming around this family, bringing meals, volunteering uh, to watch children. And uh, I, I did talk to Tiffany this week, and she just just wanted to say thank you uh, to you uh, for how you have cared for them and their family. I don't know if y'all noticed, y'all probably didn't, but their daughter, Raylan, was singing right here this morning. I actually see Tiffany right now. She's right here. And when I talked to Tiffany this week, she said it's hard, as you would expect. It's been so difficult but that the Lord has been sustaining her. And that's how the Lord is. He's so kind, and he sustains us even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Raylan, who's just four years old, she was sitting right down here, uh, Tiffany said that Raylan came to her and said, Mommy, you will have to persevere. You'll have to persevere. And we all must have to persevere, won't we? We will all face difficulties in this life, uh, before we reach heaven, in which we will have to persevere. But um, we will continue to come around you, Tiffany. We love you. We're so thankful for you. And we, we want you to know that this Christmas, I know it seems dark, but Christ is the light of the world. And we, we're so thankful that we know where Joe is and that we have that certainty that he is with the Lord. And his legacy will always be because of Christ, a light to you and your children. So, I invite you to open to John 5, to John chapter 5. We've got a lot to do this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his holy word. A brief prayer. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For your honor, amen. Right here in John chapter 5, in these verses, start the collision between the true religion of Christ and the religion of the scribes and Pharisees, the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees. And this clash that takes place right here, beginning in John 5, will continue until Christ is crucified. This is the beginning of the conflict between the religion of Christ and the false religion of the Jews and the Pharisees. Now, sometimes I hear people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you ever heard that? And I completely understand the sentiment and, by, and, and what people mean by that, but technically, Christianity is a religion. A religion, by definition, is the belief in and worship of a deity, a particular system of faith and worship. So by that definition, Christianity is a religion. The difference between the biblical religion of Christianity and other religions is that Christianity is the only true religion. Christianity is the only religion that is established by grace. Every other religion, look at every other religion, every other religion is a religion of works. It's all building yourself up. Christianity is a religion of Christ coming down, establishing a religion of grace to bring us up to God. That's the difference. So what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 5 is the difference between false religion and the true religion of Christ. All false religions consist of two errors, one, or two, one of two errors. First, they either worship the wrong God. So that would be Islam, Buddhism, 
many religions where they worship the wrong God, idolatry, uh, people worshiping themselves. Look at Instagram. People are worshiping uh, creation and, and our bodies and, and everything else. So, so that's the, the first aspect of a false religion. The second aspect is it could be worshiping the right God but in the wrong way. Worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And that was the Judaism of the scribes and the Pharisees. They worshiped the right God. They worshiped the one and true living God, but they worshiped that God in the wrong way. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 2, regarding the Jews of his day and the Jews of Jesus' day. He said, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. So, that, so they have a zeal for, for the one true God. But he says, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Rather, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Now, what is happening in John chapter 5 is this conflict. And Jesus really begins to take on this false religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I want you to look beginning in verse 8. Look at verse 8, where Jesus says to this lame man by the pool of Bethesda, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And it says, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now notice that next phrase right there at the end of John chapter 9. What does it say? Now that day was the Sabbath. And that is an important contextual marker that John is putting in the text. And that is a loaded phrase because what, is, what it's importing is the entire religi religiosity of the Jews and the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. Judaism, um, and then Christianity, which is Judaism fulfilled, have always been a religion of grace through faith. In the Old Testament, how were Old Testament saints saved? By grace. Uh, what does Paul say about Abraham in Romans 4? He said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to Christ, to the Messiah. No one has ever been saved by works, okay? Now, from the time when Ezra came back into the land to rebuild the temple from the exile, which was about 436 B.C., you remember, the, the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, the Jews went into exile, and then they finally came back into the land. And then they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the walls. And that period from when Christ came, from when they rebuilt the walls in the temple, was about 450 years. And during that period is when this false Judaism came into being. And during that time, the rabbis added literally thousands of intricacies to the Old Testament law. And they did it through what was called an oral tradition that they called the Mishnah. And they would teach uh, the, the nuances and, and how, you were, how you were to obey uh, certain laws. So this book right here is a copy of the Mishnah. This book is 786 pages of small print. 
where they, the rabbis, went into detail, just extrapolating and adding on to all of these laws, and it really became quite ridiculous. And the Sabbath is a good example of this. And this, so this week I went through and I read, there's basically 39 um, separate rules or laws regarding the Sabbath, and I just went and read that entire section. And I also went and read uh, Alfred Edersheim, who was a Jew who lived in the 1800s. Uh, he was raised learning this, and he was converted uh, to Christ and became ultimately a pastor, and he taught Hebrew at Oxford and all these things. So I was greatly helped by reading Edersheim then on the Mishnah. So let me just give you some examples of the type of laws that they taught. For example, first, you were not allowed to walk on the Sabbath more than 2,000 cubits. That would be about 3,000 feet. So you couldn't leave your house uh, and walk. Uh, basically, um, you, could, you could go a little bit more than half a mile was the distance that you could go. Uh, not only did the rabbi say that you couldn't walk 2,000 cubits, but let's say that you were involved in trade and you were going to sell some goods to some Gentiles, if you found out or thought that they were going to be traveling on the Sabbath with your goods, you couldn't sell to them. So, so they're getting into the nitty-gritty details. Two, you were not allowed to kill on the Sabbath anything, including a fly that landed on your body. You could not even swat a fly. The rabbi said that killing a fly was the equivalent of killing a camel. Couldn't do it. You chew it off, but you couldn't kill the fly. Here's another one. Women, you are going to love this one. <laughs> Women were not allowed to look in a mirror. They called them looking glasses on the Sabbath. Why? Because there was a fear that if a woman saw a gray hair in her head, that she would be tempted to pull it out. And you were not allowed to make any improvements on the Sabbath. How about that? You were not allowed, and this is, this is the, the point here that's, that's loaded. You were not allowed to carry an item outside of your house bigger than a dried fig. You were not allowed to carry an item bigger than a dried fig. Think about that. And, and he, the, the details on this point are, are so long and arduous. Literally, you were not allowed, if there was a fruit tree outside your house, you were not allowed to reach out the window and pick a piece of fruit and bring it into your house because that would be considered carrying an item from outside your house inside the house. And they were very strict about this. There is even a rule that they said, you're allowed to carry an infant child. You know, so, you know, I, I had Patrick, I'd be allowed to carry him, but you had to make sure that the child wasn't carrying anything. 
And, and you think about this as the rabbis are making these rules, right? Every rule is made because somebody saw something happening and said, oh, we can't allow that. I mean, you just think about some Jew that said, oh, I'm going to get around this rule. I'm going to pick up, pick up little Judah, and he's going to be carrying, you know, the basket that I want. Nope, nope, nope. You can't do that. You have to make sure the child's not even carrying something. And so these rules and these laws on the Sabbath just go on and on and on and on to the nth degree. I think you get the picture. And these rules uh, that the Pharisees made, not only were they super constricting. Here's the weird thing, okay? Not only did they make these rules which were so burdensome, but they also made loopholes to get around them. You see, you start to see how this veneer of external religion was so prevalent. They said, you can't do all these things, but here's the thing. Let's say that, let's say that you need to travel further than 2,000 cubits on a Sabbath. What you can do is you can take a basket of food, let's say a bread basket, and you can go place that at the 2,000 cubit mark from your house. And that basket of food establishes what's called a connection. It, it establishes essentially another part of your house half a mile away. And so you go do that on the Friday before the Sabbath. You go put out your bread basket. And then on the Sabbath, if you want to travel, 2,000 cubits past that, now you're enabled to because that's extended your domicile. Let's say that you wanted to bring some fruit, food over to your neighbor's house. What you could do, one, you could, if it was really close, you could put a board between the houses that, that connected the doorpost so you could walk on the board, and now they're one house. Now, let's say it's too far for a board. Well, you can do the same thing. You go and you put out a food basket, uh, your, your bread basket, and now uh, you're connected, and now it, it establishes it as, as one home, and then you can bring your food over on, on Saturday over to the next house. Are you starting to see what's going on here? All right, this is what Edersheim says about this silliness, okay? This is what Edersheim says about this, the, the Mishnah. He says, Yet in all these wearisome details, there is not a single trace of anything spiritual. Not a word even to suggest higher thoughts of God's holy day and observance. So the point is, is, is these Jews had completely missed the point of the Sabbath, God established the Sabbath at the very beginning, remember, in Genesis chapter 2. He established the Sabbath, it says in Genesis 2-3, as a day that is holy, because on it God rested from all His work in creation. It was a day in which it was to be set apart so that we would look up and remember that God is the one who worked, that God is the one who created, and we would remember his character, and we would cease striving from our work. That's the only thing that's forbidden, by the way, in the Ten Commandments, is that we cease striving from our work. It's not forbidden that we can't carry something or 
enjoy the day or go to a neighbor's house. None of that's in the, the actual law. All of that was just legalistic externals added by the scribes. And it was silly. It was just ridiculous with, with all the loopholes. Uh, Kenny and I, we like to go to this coffee shop right here behind the church called the Optimus. And they have a silly rule like this, okay? So we, we go inside, and Kenny and I normally don't wear masks inside. And then every single time, they say, hey, can you go outside? They have a little outside window. They said, can you go outside and order your coffee since you're not wearing a mask? And we say, sure, we'll go outside. We go outside, we order our coffee, and then guess what? They have a rule, as long as you're drinking coffee inside, you don't have to have a mask. So we go outside, we order our coffee, we get our coffee, then we go inside, we're drinking our coffee, we sit sit down, we never have to put on our mask, and it's completely fine. Right? See, there are some Pharisees and scribes in the here and now. But Jesus saw through all this. And I want to paint a scenario to you for what happens here in John chapter 5. So Jesus comes up to this unnamed feast, and he goes to the temple. He always goes to the temple, right? Because he wants to be in his father's house. He goes to the temple because he wants to commune with God. He goes to the temple because he wants to be with God's people. The Pharisees and the scribes are in the temple laying these burdens on people. They're in the temple. They would gather people around them, and they would start teaching this oral law. Here's what you can't do. Here's what you can do. You can't pick up the toddler. You can't let him hold anything. And they're telling all the people these things. And Jesus hears this, and he sees all of this false religion, and he says, enough is enough. I'm going to pick a fight. And he walks right out of the northern gate of the city, the sheep gate, right up to that pool of Bethesda. And he says, I'm going to pick the, old, the, 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 the most uh, debilitated person here. He picks the guy who's been uh, 38 years lame, says, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And he does it because it's on the Sabbath day. He tells him to pick up his bed to bring an altercation. And he wants to then have a showdown in the temple. Notice Jesus doesn't stay there. Jesus goes back to the temple, and he's waiting for this thing to develop. And he is going to start to blow up this false religion and lift up the true religion. In Matthew 23, which is later on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says some very frank words about all of this external religiosity, especially around the Sabbath. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says they sit on Moses' seat. Literally, that would be a literal seat in the synagogues that you would sit on to read the law. He says they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, he's referencing there what they tell you about the true law, not not this. What they tell you that's actually in the Bible. But he says, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to 
to move them, even with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And he keeps going. He also says, if you skip down to verse 24 in Matthew 23, he calls the scribes and Pharisees blind guides. He says, you are blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So he says, look, you're about the externals, you're about appearing right, you're about teaching people this stuff, but inside, you don't know who God is. You don't know the Father. You aren't transformed from the inside out. Your religion is dead. It's dead. So what had happened? When, when, when you're involved in false religion, dead religion, what happens is it blinds you. And so what we're going to see now is this blindness of the Jewish false religion. And what you need to know about all false religions is that false religions aren't just a mistake, okay? There is a spiritual dynamic behind every false religion. And Satan is governing and working in all the false religions of the world. You need to understand this. There really is a spiritual power behind the false religions. And there was a spiritual power behind this false religion. Jesus says in John 8, to the scribes and Pharisees. Listen to these words. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Hear that? So, so you're controlled by the devil himself. That, that's how deceived you are. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Who's the God of this world? Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what you have in a false religion is Satan working, blinding people, keeping people busy doing things. Satan loves for you to, to develop your own self-righteousness. Satan loves that. He'll do anything he can to keep you from seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he can keep somebody busy in that, all power to him. So look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Notice that the Jews, rather than being stunned about the healing of this lame man, you'd think, wow, there, there was a man who was lame for 38 years, and now he can walk. Rather than giving their attention to that, they're concerned that he is carrying something on the Sabbath. 
Remember, John says in John 20 that the signs are given so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're supposed to see the sign, the miracle that Jesus does, and look past it, realizing that Jesus is the Son of God. These people can't see past the fact that this man is carrying his bed. That, that is the extent of their blindness. Now, what I think is sad here is not only do the Jews not see Jesus through the sign that he's performed, but neither does the lame man who is healed. Look at verse 11. He, that's the lame man who's now healed, answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, he's saying, don't blame me. Don't blame me that I'm carrying my bed. I, I'm, he's the one who told me to do it. Go find him. He's blaming Jesus. I think it's sad that he's not wondering who Jesus is. He's not going to find Jesus. He didn't seek Jesus after Jesus healed him. Look at verse 12. They ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Not who is the man who healed you, Who's the man who told you to break our Sabbath traditions? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Again, Jesus did not want to have the confrontation by the pool, so he healed the man, took a step back, and walked to the temple. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus finds him, and out of concern for the man, and also for his purposes of confronting this false religion, he reveals himself, and he says to him, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, Lots has been written about this because it seems like Jesus is implying that the reason why the man was lame was because of his sin. Possibly, maybe that's true, but Jesus also says in John 9, 2, when, after he heals the man born blind, he says, not all suffering is due to sin. What I think Jesus is saying to the man is he's saying, you need to repent of your sin. You need to repent because something worse could happen to you. What's worse than being lame for 38 years in an ancient society? The judgment of God. The judgment of God in hell. And, and Jesus, if you look at his ministry, he was always concerned about the state of people's souls. That's what he was concerned about. Yeah, he would heal people, but he was more concerned that the person's soul be made well, then their legs be made well. And he said, repent. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Repentance is the first step in coming to faith in Christ. Repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, which means meta, which we get metamorphosis, means transform or change. And noea is your mind, it's a compound word. Change your mind. Transform your mind. Transform your mind about your sin, 
what it means before God, and transform your mind about who I am as the Lord. Change your mind. Jesus says, sin no more. And, and that's where faith begins, is with repentance. They're, they're like uh, heads and tails on a coin. They go together. You can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have true repentance without faith. And Jesus calls this man to repentance. And here's the tragedy. Look at verse 15. The, the man, you, you would think that the man would worship Christ. You would think that the man would profess faith in Christ. You would think that the man would desire to follow Christ. You would think that the man would see, look at his own legs and see what Christ has done and say, Jesus, I desire to follow after you with these new legs. That's not what he does. What does he do with these new legs? He walks over to the Jews and says, that's the guy right there. He betrays the Lord Jesus on his new legs. Think of that audacity. The very gift that he has been given, he uses to betray the Lord Jesus Christ in sin. But think about how often we do the very same thing. Whose body is this? It's God's. Yet how often do we as believers use the temple of the Holy Spirit to commit grievous sins with your eyes, with your lust, with your coveting, with your actions? Paul says, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You are not your own. You're Christ. And if you're Christ, you need to obey him and follow him and love him with your whole heart and dedicate your soul to him. But this man, tragically, doesn't see it. And he goes and he rats out Jesus to the Jews. And I think, obviously, Jesus knew that would happen. He's omniscient. He knew what was going to happen. And now, this confrontation begins. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That phrase, we're persecuting, suggests an ongoing activity. In other words, it begins now, but it carries on throughout Jesus' ministry. They started to persecute Jesus, and they continued to persecute Jesus. The same thing happens in John chapter 9, after Jesus heals the man born blind, the people said, this is John 9, 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, the irony is that Jesus is the one who, as the eternal Son of God, invented the Sabbath. Think about that. Jesus is the one who created the cosmos, and he's the one that established the Sabbath from the beginning. You remember Mark 2? Uh, Jesus was picking grain with the disciples. Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He, he's the one over the Sabbath. He's, he's the one that we're supposed to see in the Sabbath and through the Sabbath. And yet, this is the one that they are rejecting. This is the one that they 
are persecuting. And this, this is part and parcel with every false religion. Every false religion ultimately rejects Christ for who he really is. Every false religion ultimately persecutes those who follow Christ. But now, Christ is going to explain his true religion, the broadcast of Christ's true religion. Look at verse 17. He says, this is Jesus' answer. And this is a fascinating answer because what Jesus could have, done, could have done is he could have gone and debated this. He could have gone and said, look, you've added all these rules, you've added all these laws, it's wrong. Let's go to the original uh, law of Moses and look at it. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. He trumps that. Look what he says. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Okay, this is a really important statement that Jesus makes. And, and I want you to focus and pay special attention here because this is the essence of the true religion of Christianity. Notice this. My father is working. Now, most Jews did not reference at this point God as their father. But Jesus says, my father is working. Um, the rabbis taught that yes, Jesus, our, the Father God had rested on the seventh day, but that God worked on the Sabbath to uphold the universe. That's what the rabbis taught. They taught, yes, God still works on the Sabbath. This was universal teaching from the rabbis. So what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, my Father is working, and, and they would agree with that. And then he says, and I am working. I am working. See, it's a, it's a statement of divinity. He's saying, just as God the Father works on the Sabbath, guess what? I am working on the Sabbath. I also am working. He's saying that the essence of true religion is himself. That the essence of true religion is seeing that he is the eternal Son of God. That the essence of true religion is understanding his mission. That the essence of true religion is resting in Christ, in him. So you see, the Sabbath was about rest. Resting from your labors and resting in God. What Jesus is saying here, ever so subtly, is you are supposed to be finding your eternal rest in me. That's what he's saying. That's the essence of true religion, is that you cease striving from trying to earn God's favor and that you find your eternal rest in Christ himself. Now, there's this verse. We all love this verse. This verse is on coffee mugs. This verse is everywhere. You'll know this verse. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, rest for your souls. Now, we think labor and heavy laden. We, we, we think, oh man, you know, I'm working hard. Life's, life's difficulties are upon me. You know, I need rest. That's, that's not the type of rest Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about are the Jews who have been under all these rules. 
and their souls have been burdened because they've been trying to earn God's favor by their works. That's what he's talking about. All who are heavy laden, heavy laden with the teaching of the scribes. He's saying, look, all you people, you've been working so hard. You've been taught wrong. You've been like sheep without a shepherd. And people have been pouring on this false religion on you. And you've been under these heavy burdens. And Jesus is saying, come to me. All who are weary of carrying those burdens of false religion. All who are tired. All who are heavy laden. And you will find rest for your souls. That's what he's saying. And so this is an invitation this morning. Some of you, man, maybe you, you, you've, you've known about Christ, but you've been working. You think it's Christ plus something to earn his favor. It's Christ plus I need to get back into church. It's Christ plus I need to read my Bible. It's Christ plus I need to help other people. It's Christ plus I need to put this sin behind me because otherwise God won't accept me. No, 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 no. You're, you're trying to do this. You're trying to add works onto what Christ has done. And what Christ is saying to you is rest. Rest. Find your rest in me. Why? Because I have fulfilled the law perfectly. I have obeyed the laws perfectly perfectly. Remember Christ said, I did not come to abolish the laws, but to fulfill them. And he fulfilled them by obeying them. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Christianity is a religion of Christ's work and Christ's grace for you. His death on the cross was the penalty for your sins and his righteous life was lived for you. So that when Christ looks at you in faith, he looks at you cleansed by his blood and cloaked in his righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. And Jesus has put away all these silly laws. My heavenly Father is working and I am working. I am God. I am the Son of God. As believers who have trusted in that gospel, how prone are we, how tempted are we to begin to think that we can add something on to what Christ has done? This is what the Galatians did, remember? Yeah, we believe in Christ. I trust Christ. I know where I stand before God, but oh man, it feels so good adding some of these laws on. And it feels good because when you begin to be a moralist, you can start to compare yourself with other people. Feels good for a time to add things on, but ultimately that ends in slavery because you realize that you fail and you also realize that there's other people that are better than you. And so Paul says this, in Galatians 5.1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to works righteousness. Don't go back to a yoke of slavery. If you've received Christ's rest, rest in Christ. 
Keep resting. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Now look at verse 18. Jesus makes this statement, and this is what John adds, okay? So this is John's commentary on the event. He says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. Now, when he says he's breaking the Sabbath, remember, he's giving the opinion of the Jews. Jesus didn't really break the Sabbath. He broke their version of the Sabbath. But this part is true, this second statement. But he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was absolutely doing that. So when those Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they say, you know, Jesus isn't God, Jesus didn't claim to be God, it's right here. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. And he performed signs that showed he was God. And for this, they wanted to kill him because he was opposing their false religion. And guess what? They did kill him. A year and a half later, they killed him. And Jesus said this. He says in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, this is coming down the pipe for us. Read the book of Revelation, Revelation 13. The beast, what does he do? He's given permission to make war on the saints. And it says even conquer the saints. False religion, Satan's religion, they want to make war against the saints. It's a given. And so we have to prepare ourselves. And notice it comes not just because Jesus claimed to be a good person, but because he claimed to be God and because he violated what the other religions thought. The Romans were fine that the Christians believed in Jesus. What they couldn't stand is that the Christians claimed that Jesus is the only God and that all the other Roman gods were wrong. People will tolerate you if you say, I just believe in Jesus, but we'll, what they will not tolerate is when you say, what you're doing over there is wrong, right? It's, I'm violating your Sabbath that they hate. It's, I'm claiming to be God that they hate. So as you follow Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, man, that is a doctrine that puts a bullseye on your back. You know what? And it's a bullseye I welcome. And it's a bullseye that you should welcome. You know why? Because it means that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who will be saved from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that are that suffer and are persecuted for the cause of Christ, they suffer and are persecuted because they're saved, because your name is written in heaven. We will be persecuted for holding to this true religion. Make no mistake about it. But Christ will be with us to the very end. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We are so thankful, Lord, that you 
show us what the essence of true religion is, that it's Christ and Christ crucified and Christ alone giving us rest from false works. And Lord, we thank you for this gospel, this gospel of grace that we can trust in you and trust you alone in the certainty that this gives us even at this time at Christmas while we remember what you did to accomplish this coming into the world. Lord, we praise you because we do not need to rest in ourselves and in our own works, but we rest in your work, the work that you did all the way from a baby to the cross. And we rest in that work this morning, and we pray, Lord, that we would be prepared just as you were persecuted for standing for this true religion, that we would be prepared to stand for it as well and be persecuted and even killed if it needs be. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.